0: So much older then. I'm than that now.
1: Do you ever think about what your life is going to be like, say, 10, 20, 30 years from now? Where do you want to be? What do you want to be doing? There's no better time than now, folks, to start that conversation because too many of us never get around to it. And if you just keep going through the motions, it's just never going to happen. But if you start thinking, planning, laying the foundation, and taking those small steps now... Well, you won't believe what's possible. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And over the next hour, you're going to meet average, everyday people who have overcome many of the same doubts, fears, and obstacles that we all face to make their later years some of the most interesting and exciting of their lives.
2: We are a scared species, aren't we, Bill? (laughs) We are timid. I think you nailed it. You know, it's about overcoming our fears as we get older. You know, the phrase is that we use often is ordinary people living extraordinary lives, and the more of them you hear from, the more you're going to realize that you, too, can do it. On this program, you'll hear from author Barbara Hannah grufferman about how feeling needed can be one of the keys to successful aging, and we'll bring you the extraordinary story of how a bond developed between a severely disabled young man and some volunteers the kind of bond that is bringing moments of joy to an entire family. But first, an inspiring, revealing, and really fascinating conversation with the most legendary rock photographer of them all. This guy's story is incredible, and the man himself is every bit as interesting. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives. This is Growing Bold. Hi, everybody. We hope you're not just listening to Growing Boulder, but actually Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer. So, what decade had the best music? Do you know which one scored highest in a survey in Rolling Stone magazine? It was the 60s. I remember it well. Those may have been some of the most magical musical times ever. Could you imagine having been a fly on the wall? Back in the Laurel Canyon days or during the Summer of Love or at Woodstock? Well, we're going to talk to a guy now who was all of that. Not only was Henry Diltz there for it all, you might say that he had a front row seat. He actually lived down the street from Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, John Sebastian, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Jim Morrison, and so many more. And he was friends with all of them. Well, he happened to take a few candid photos, and before you know it, because of this access, because of his eye, because of his talent, he became the go-to guy in the industry, turning out what uh, really have turned out to be some of the most iconic photos ever. He shot more than 250 album covers and thousands of publicity stills. And this is so interesting
1: because you've probably seen his work and maybe didn't realize it. Album covers like James Taylor's Sweet Baby James, The Doors' Morrison Hotel album, so many of them. His photos, like Mark said, they were all over the New York Times and Life magazine, Rolling Stone. And you see many of them on an incredible online exhibit at his website. They're available to look at now morrisonhotelgallery.com is his site this summer he was a guest on our what's next program on facebook such a great conversation we knew we had to share it with you so here is famed photographer henry diltz with me mark and our own laura savini
0: I'm so glad you put that um, endless summer exhibit together. I was thinking about that because so many people are inside and we're having the opportunity to see these incredible images of summer. What what made you decide to do this?
3: Well, that's our gallery, the Morrison um, Hotel Gallery. Um, And, you know, we, at this point, after 20 years, we have 125 photographers now. So when we try to do a, a show, to include everybody, we, we try to pick, you know, kind of a, a topic, a subject that we can draw from everybody's pictures. So we thought since it's summer outside and we can't really go outside very much, we'll bring it in to everybody. So we picked that as as a, as a subject for this virtual show. And, you know, if we had this show in one of our, our three galleries, we're in New York, L.A. and Maui, we could only put maybe 50 or 60 pictures on the wall but with this show, we can put many more because the walls go on forever.
0: Oh, you're right, in the, in the interweb, yeah. and, and and they're all we could purchase these these incredible oh, yeah. images.
3: Yeah, sure. Our our gallery, you know, all of those 125 photographers have their pictures on our website. If you search by name or or by artists, and they're all Mm. for sale, yeah. Mm.
0: Hey, Henry, you know what? I I always wonder, like, how you got the the confidence of all of these musicians that you have always shot, all these many, many years. How come you were accepted so readily into their world?
3: Well, you know, it's because I was a, a musician before I picked up a camera. In the folk days, the early 60s, Folk music was the music of the land, and I sang in a group called the Modern Folk Quartet, and we toured across the country many times, um, playing at colleges and clubs and TV shows, and musicians are kind of, it's kind of a little club, you know, it's like an exclusive little club, and I mean, all of my friends really were musicians, so... Um, and when I picked up a camera, they didn't really notice that I was still, you know, Henry the banjo player, I guess. And I just, you know, I knew these people for years before I ever had a camera, and so therefore I could hang out. You know, I was one of the one of the one of the guys, you know, that <laughs> and girls that we that we hung out with all the time, and that so worked for me because because I I like to I like to document. You know, I'm not the kind of photographer that. Gets everybody, you know, posed and puts lights in a backdrop. I don't, I don't produce a picture. I, I just want to look at people and see what they're doing. And when they don't really know it, take a picture of it.
0: So that's, that is the magic of your photos because you're not a, a studio guy. You're not taking yeah. someone in and setting up a, shop, a shot. It's really the musician in their own world.
3: Exactly.
0: That why they, that's right. why they work.
3: Yeah, I'm not a producer. I'm more um, well. You know, they use the word "fly on the wall." Uh, I, my Chinese animal. I urge everyone to find out their Chinese animal. It's very telling. Uh, I happen to be a tiger, and a tiger likes to hide and watch the other animals. So it's not so much that I was hiding. You know, I was hiding in plain sight. But 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 I'm very curious about people. I always have been, and I like to observe. I'm an observer. And so when you know when we'd be sitting around somewhere talking, I would just kind of sneak a little photo and you know and not make a big deal of it, and and that that's the way I like to do it.
0: I, I think one of my favorites of yours is because just the purity of it is the sweet baby James photo, yes. the the one. And I think we ha- we have that one to show that you shared with us. Uh, it, it's I mean that look on his that's face done. is just complete innocence and and it's just gorgeous tell us how that happened
3: well you know all these pictures start with a phone call uh in my I'm in my kitchen in laurel canyon and the phone call phone rang it was peter asher who had just produced uh, james's album and he said could you come to my house and photograph this guy we just did an album and so i went and met him and we took photos in the living room and i said we need to go outside somewhere so we went to a friend's sort of a musical commune where a bunch of musicians lived. And there were little barns and little sheds around there that were good for backdrops. And it was a very quiet afternoon. I mean, we, we talked a little bit, but, but he, he's a very kind of a quiet guy, you know, and he was quiet that day. And, and he, he's very tall. And he leaned on that post, which was about as tall as I was. He leaned on it and it just looked so great. And I took that picture and then actually I was supposed to take black and white photos for publicity, which that is. But it looked so good to me that I said, wait a minute, let me get my color camera because I wanted to get a color shot so I could put it in my slideshows that I would have on the weekends. And then the manager saw the color picture and, and, and showed it to the record company and they used that for an album cover. So it was an accidental album cover. I really was supposed to be shooting publicity photos. But, you know, and then when the album came out, um, I just loved that song, Sweet Baby James. When I photograph people for their album covers, I usually haven't heard the album because it's usually not finished yet. And so when I heard that, I just I mean, I think that's, you know, an anthem like a, you know, it's an anthem. It's so beautiful. Sweet Baby James. And I sang it to both of my little kids when they were little babies to put them to sleep.
0: <laughs> oh, you know, I, and you've told me these stories um that you actually would go on tour like for months. You would just be out on the road in the tour bus on the airplanes with
3: with like we're talking the big guys here. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> big guys and little guys, little airplanes, a big airplane. Usually, yeah, it could be a few months. I was on the on tour with uh, the Love and Spoonful in 66, and that was for two or three months off and on, flying around the country in a little two-engine plane. I was on tour with the monkeys. uh That was maybe more like a month. And then I would go out like a, a couple of weeks with the Eagles or Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, uh, the Turtles, just a lot of groups, you know. And it would it, it it it's fun to photograph them, you know, in an airport and a van and backstage and sound check and all. There's many opportunities to get candid photos that way.
0: I love the way you just toss off these things, Laurel Canyon and the monkeys and this and that. You lived it. You lived it. And I know my pals, Mark and Bill, uh, are big fans of many of the groups that you're talking about. So we were hoping that maybe you could give us some of the background behind some of these iconic photos. And I know that's a word my husband doesn't like me to always use iconic, but in this case, these are photos we all, all know. Yeah.
3: Well, you know, it's a funny thing because, I mean, they're all moments in my life, you know, right? I mean, I look at them all, it puts me back in those places where, where, and these people are, musical heroes to me. I mean, I love all of their music. So I was like a little kid sneaking under the circus tent to hang out with these people. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then years later, they become iconic photos. But to me, it was just my everyday life. And, th- and, and just how lucky I was to be right in the middle of Laurel Canyon, right at the start of this Renaissance of, of singer songwriters. It was a flowering of, and, you know, and it all happened because, We had had folk music. You never write a folk song. That's a hundred year old song that a miner or a a cowboy or a sailor sang. And then when the Beatles played Ed Sullivan, all the folk groups saw them and said, wow, that that is great music. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we want to sing that kind of a song. And so people started writing their own songs because that's what the Beatles were doing, and that's what Bob Dylan was doing, and then you had this this flowering Renaissance of singer songwriters, and how great that was. Because you know you've got they're very interesting people, like you know Jackson Brown and Jimmy Webb and Joni Mitchell and uh, Stephen Still, Neil Young. All these people are very interesting people, and to hear their own take on life, you know, it's their own poetry, their own ideas, their own. Heartbreak or whatever it is in their songs became just just a really wonderful thing. And that was that was the sea change that happened in the music industry, I would say, in the late 60s.
2: Right guy, right guy, right place, right time, Uh, folks. We're talking with Henry Diltz. If you just joined us, who really is, you know, one of the one of one of the greatest rock photographers of all time, and and as we can hear now, really a rock historian. Uh, And Henry, you've taken so many great shots. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know the the iconic again Doors shot for the Morrison Hotel that became the cover for that album? Because I think you named your gallery after it. How did that come about?
3: We did. Yeah. Well, the doors called us one day. I was working with a a lovely guy named Gary Burden, who was a graphic artist. So we would plan these little adventures and photograph groups. And then he would go through the photos and pick the one for the cover. Um, So anyway, the doors called us one day. Um, We had just done Crosby stills Nash's album. And they saw that and said, we want you to do our next album cover. So we went over and met with them in their little office and, and it was Jim and Ray Manzarek. And we said, <clears throat> do you have a title? And they said, uh, no. We said, well, do you have some idea of what you want on your cover? no. And then and we're going, well, uh, and Ray Manzarek said, you know, my wife Dorothy and I were driving through downtown LA the other day and we saw this old funky hotel, that Morrison Hotel on the window. And we thought, wow, you know, that sounds great. And we went right down and saw it, came back a week later with the group. And um, the the guy behind the desk in the lobby wouldn't let us photograph in there without the owner's permission. So I thought, well, we can get him to stand in front of the window. They can't stop (laughs) us then. And as we stood outside, I saw a light go on in the lobby. And I looked through the window and I said, that's the elevator light. The guy left the desk Nobody's in there. Like, <laughs> run in there, you guys. And they ran in there for a couple of minutes. One roll of film, and we got out of there. And that's how that one happened.
1: Boy, that's you mentioned the Crosby, Stills, Nash album, which was right before that. Another happy accident. They're sitting on some beat-up old couch in front of a building. Yes. Yeah, you know, the same thing. Yeah, I was going to say, Henry, you tell an amazing story, how you thought, okay, maybe that would be a good shot. But the record company goes, no, it's Crosby, Stills, Nash. And the photograph, which we'll take a look at, is Nash, Stills, and Crosby.
3: Something like that. Yes, yes. We were driving around West Hollywood just taking, once again, publicity photos. They were doing their first album, and they didn't have any pictures at all. And so as we drove around, there was we found this little house... Little wooden house with a couch out in front. We jumped out of Gary's old Ford station wagon. They jumped on the couch, and we took a bunch of pictures. Later, we looked at, this, at, the, at the slides when we got them back from Kodak. Took a couple days to get them developed. And everybody said, wow, that would make a good album cover, even though we weren't trying to take an album cover. And They said, but unfortunately, we just decided to call ourselves Crosby, Sills, Nash, and in there, it's Nashville's and Crosby. So we can't. We thought, well, maybe we'll flip the photo over, and then Stephen will be playing the guitar left-handed. So that. We'll... <laughs> so I thought, well, hey, let's just go back. You jump on the couch, bang, bang, bang. We'll take it in five minutes. So we all got in Gary's Ford station wagon and drove back a few, couple of days later, and the house was gone. There was nothing there. A empty lot. <laughs> <laughs> So they used it like it was, they're backwards.
1: You're listening to a conversation with perhaps the most iconic rock photographer ever, Henry Dilt. So interesting, so articulate, and so perceptive. And yeah, he gave us an incredible perspective with his camera. But now in his 80s, he's doing the same with his own perspective. And in just a minute, we'll get his thoughts about Jimi Hendrix and a whole lot more. This is Growing Bolder.
0: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
1: our partners at Florida Blue Medicare, providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID 19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingbolder.com/slash COVID. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com/slash TV for program listings and
2: where to watch. Welcome back to Growing Boulder. You know, I was there for the conversation, Bill, and I can't wait to get back to it again. A fascinating chat with the most unique rock photographer ever. He's the guy who captured candid images of the Summer of Love and Woodstock and so much more. He was backstage. He was on the road. He was even inside the homes of so many legendary figures of rock and roll. And now that he's in his 80s, his recollections are just as insightful and revealing as are his photographs. So let's continue as Bill Lorcevini and I talk with Henry Diltz. You know, just amazing stories. And I have to ask you because, A, uh, I was of age in 1969. I could have gone to Woodstock. I love Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix, and I know you took uh, a picture of Jimmy. You were actually at Woodstock. Can you tell us about that photo?
3: Yeah, the one of, of Jimi. Uh, yeah, Cameron. on stage. Yeah, in the morning, Monday morning. He was supposed to close the show Sunday night, but they were so backed up, he didn't go on until dawn Monday morning. And um, what was so amazing was, you know, these guys came out in the early morning hours wearing those bright colored headbands. And it was like, whoa, because we'd all been up pretty much for three days. And then he, you know, he played a couple songs and then he started playing this solo, beautiful, you know, pristine version of the Star Spangled Banner. And then putting in all those sounds like airplanes and machine guns. And it was like, whoa, we were going, well, wait a minute, wait, what? <laughs> because as I've said before, we were, a, you know, it was a field full of almost half a million peace and love hippies who were against the war and therefore against the government. And here was Jimmy playing that, that sort of official song. And at first it was like, well, what is he playing that for? And then the next instant you would think, Wait a minute! That's our song. You know, we're—he's taking it back for us, he's reclaiming it. I wish he was around to really ask him exactly what was on his mind. Uh, you know, I—I've talked to his conga player. That just last year, we had the fiftieth anniversary of Woodstock, and his conga player said, "Oh yeah, he rehearsed that for a couple of weeks. He would wow. rehearse, and he wanted to get it perfect. So he was definitely making a statement. You know, and he was in the uh, in the army. Um, so he was a military guy. I don't know what what he was what he was trying to bring together there. I think it was that that's our song too, and we're one
2: nation, and we're still talking about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Henry. Henry, did you know at that moment? Because so many people who were there say they just knew that he was going to change music. Things were going to be different now once Jimi Hendrix played mm-hmm. that. Did you feel that vibe in the, in the middle of all of those people? Could yeah. you tell? Well,
3: you know, I'd seen him play before. Uh, with the mamas and Papas, and I'd seen him at Monterey pop. So I knew he was the, nobody, nobody could play like him. He could make it talk and nobody will ever play like him. Um, So I wasn't surprised about that. What was really surprising was that he played that song in the middle of this kind of a, a, you know, you know, what you could call kind of a protest against, you know, the war. Everybody there was, was sort of totally against going to a foreign land and and killing strangers for your country and for what reason. Um, So, but, you know, when these moments happen, you know, I never think, boy, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, we'll be talking about this moment. You never, you never feel that, you know, it's just an amazing moment and you just go, wow. It's just, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I never do think someday I'll remember this moment. <laughs> I'm just well, well, <laughs> looking and drinking it in, you
1: know. Here's something else about you, Henry Diltz, and I think your photos speak for themselves. They're amazing. They will stand the test of time. They will always be fascinating. But you know what's even cooler is you. Are you actually? Listen, this is this. Our show is called Growing Boulder, and it's about people. Uh. Who, as they age, they look for new adventures. They love life. They have energy. They're curious. You yeah. may be the coolest over eighty year old in the country. What, what, <laughs> what is it that starts your engine in the morning? And how, do, how do you look at age to where yeah. it doesn't slow you down?
3: I, I think age is just a number, really. It's what you feel, you know. I mean, I feel, you know, twenty, I guess. You know, I, I think life is a big adventure. <clears throat> it's a wonderful experience, and I, I sort of, you know, thank the creator, thank all that is, whatever you want to call him, it, her, thank the universe every day I wake up, you know. First I wake up, and I wake up all my cells and my body, because, you know, we have millions and millions of little living cells that make up our body, and I say, hey, good morning, you guys. A <laughs> Shout out to the cells, you know, and I kind of quiver all over feeling the cells and <laughs> position myself in the day. And I do a little wake up the sort of chakra awakening exercise that I learned from Carolyn Mace, this new age guru lady. And um then I get up and take my twenty-seven vitamins and minerals <laughs> and supplements, you know, and I take enzymes and I take amino acids and I take, you know, mitochondrial things that feed your little cell engines and and I do all that. And I try to eat right. And, I, you,
2: know,
3: I, I know. you know, I don't know. I don't know. That should be your next we, book. Yeah, yeah, it
0: should be his next book. You know, the other thing you do, Henry, that I, I love is that you continue. You just keep moving. And you do something called grabbing beauty you and I were talking about the other day. That yeah. you continue to do that each and every day.
3: Yes, you and I were talking on the phone the other day, and we were talking about what photographs are. I mean, there's these moments. And I said, you know, I think of myself as an existentialist. Um, I I live in the moment, because the moment is the only real thing there is. I mean, the past is a memory. The future is a hope or a dream or a plan. But we're living right in the moment. Um, And so I said, yeah, these photographs, it sort of bothered me one time, uh, one day years ago, when I thought, well, you know, it it doesn't sit well with me that I'm known for capturing these past moments when I really want to say, we're over here now, we're in the moment now, and these are all past moments. And then somebody said, yeah, but what you're doing is bringing the past moments into the present. And I went, ah, okay, (laughs) I can live with that, you know. So as I was talking to Laura about this, it reminded me of a poem by Jared Manley Hopkins. Um, <clears throat> a friend of mine used to recite this, Judy Hensky, a blues a blues singer. And so I took it out and read it, and it's about grabbing beauty. It says, um, how to keep? Is there any, any? Is there none such, nowhere, known some, bow or brooch or braid or brace, lace, latch or catch or key? to keep back beauty, keep it beauty, beauty, beauty from vanishing away. Wow,
2: Ah, I ah.
3: love that poem. And it Ah. just popped into my mind, you know, because we were talking about grabbing moments and say, and so maybe the answer to that poem, yes, there is a way and maybe a photograph or a movie. I mean, you, you you do capture beauty. And you and you I mean, what's interesting to me is that I've lived my life, seen all these great moments, taken photos of it, not so much as a as a photographer, but more as just a guy who wanted to kind of remember what he saw, you know, and, and then they've become I, I mean, I never knew I was going to share them with the world. And 50 years later, it would be some kind of a historical archive that never occurred to me. <laughs> it was just every day was another day, you know.
0: Well, you've taken some of the most famous rock photographs there are I mean, I'm thinking we uh Paul McCartney photos with Paul and Linda and photos um, with the eagles. I mean these are photos everybody recognizes and um uh, and that you take a hundred photos a day to this I day do. I do i take. <laughs>
3: I have a little, a little pocket camera that I carry around and I take easily a hundred pictures. I mean, when I'm down in Laguna, I'm taking pictures of hummingbirds, you know, and birds at the bird feeder. And uh, we have tulips on the dining room table. I take close ups of the tulips and just whatever, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to be framing things up because I have a framing Jones and I like to look (laughs) at the world that way. I like to frame things up and You know, whether it's a fellow musician or or some birds at the bird feeder, it's all kind of the same to me in a way. You know what I mean? I'm framing up stuff. And it's just a lucky accident that I was around these people that nowadays we all care about. So much. Well,
2: let's look at a couple of those photos that Laura mentioned Good. as we wrap this mm-hmm. up. We, we do have Paul McCartney uh, and Linda, yeah. another very, very sweet photo. And, and Jacob, let's just push through. Uh, we, we've got that.
3: Uh, mm-hmm. uh, jo- you know, Let me just say, I, you know, the reason I took that is because I met um, I met her one day at a photo lab in New York. I met Linda. She was developing her, her film and I was and we met and we became friends. Years later, she married Paul. And she invited me out to their beach house one day to take photos they needed for a songbook. And then she said, well, we want to see them right away because we want to use one for the cover of Life magazine. Mm. Wow. Because that was kind of the holy grail of photographers, you know, in the 60s and 70s, be on the cover of Life magazine, your photo on the cover. So well, that's that
2: happened. This is the quality of the imagery, folks, that you can get from this uh, virtual gallery. That uh, And let's show everybody how they can find this virtual gallery at the Morrison Hotel uh, Gallery. And it's not just these beautiful uh, rock and roll f- photographs. It really captures the zeitgeist uh, of the era, if you will. Some very, very interesting people. And let me just say this, you know, you know Henry, thank you so much for, the moments that you captured and you have shared with us, but, 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 but sir, without your camera, uh, you still have given us one moment <laughs> after another, uh, in this interview, we're blessed that you had the, your camera, but, but Lord knows you don't need it. You are a very interesting dude in and of your own right. And, and we thank you for that.
3: Thank you. Well, well thank you very much. Um, you know, my pleasure. Aww. <laughs> Love you, Henry. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, you guys.
4: Pleasure <laughs> talking to you.
3: And, you know, let's keep the adventure going, huh?
4: <laughs> That's right. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye
1: rock photographer Henry Diltz, what a fascinating outlook the guy has on life and you can see many of the photographs we were talking about and so many more on the website
2: morrisonhotelgallery.com he is one very cool dude bill you know interesting that he was there to capture so many memorable moments uh, and not because he ever intended to be or was meant to be or studied to be a big time photographer with a studio and fancy gear he was just a guy with a camera who had access to candid situations and, you know, the insight uh, and the ability to capture unique moments. It never occurred to him that he was documenting the legends of his time in the most revealing and heartfelt ways. Still carries that camera (laughs) around with him today. Uh, He loved it then, uh, and it still gives him life today. Yeah, so many
1: things in that interview, Mark, to think about. One of the biggest is what you just said. I mean, it never occurred to him that he was making history. He never even thought of it as a career. He's he was just a guy following his interest, hanging with his friends, capturing important moments in time to him. So, what are your interests? what What do you really like to do? Henry said he mostly likes to what shoot birds now, and he talked about <laughs> that with the same passion he had talking about the rock stars. Like he said, he just does what he loves, and that's what gives him
2: a spark for life even at this stage of his life. You know what I like most about this interview, Bill, is that by the end of it, I honestly could not have cared less that he was a photographer and that he took the the, the album covers that, that I had in my collection. I cared about the interview because he was just a cool and interesting guy. He's in his 80s. He's still sharp. He's still passionate about life. He's still curious. He's still learning. He's still living a way in his 80s that we all want to. Uh, he says it because he makes time every day for affirmations he has learned to stop and smell the roses he takes care of himself physically and mentally and he finds beauty in all he sees which I guess is why he's a photographer because he sees it he records it and he shares it but again what a cool dude up next a woman and her severely
1: disabled son find moments of happiness from the most unlikely people in a most unlikely place this is Growing Boulder.
0: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
1: The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com.
2: Hi, I'm Mark Middleton from Growing Boulder with a special message about the upcoming election. This message is not about supporting any particular candidate, it is, though, about supporting the Affordable Care Act and Medicare. This election is far more than just a hotly contested presidential race. For nearly two million Floridians, our families, friends and community members, it could mean losing affordable, quality health care if the Affordable Care Act is not protected. The Affordable Care Act has been providing quality, affordable health care to those with pre existing conditions. It's been reducing life saving prescription drug costs for Medicare Part D members and covering important cancer screenings. The kinds of procedures that allow our great doctors and health care providers to catch health issues early enough to not only save our lives, but also billions of dollars in health care costs. Don't let COVID 19 keep you from casting your vote. It's not only your right, it's your responsibility. As you know, there are many ways to vote in Florida, and here are a few tips from our friends at Florida Blue Medicare. Vote by mail. It's a great, safe, and secure option if you're a caregiver or uncomfortable in public settings. Make sure that you request a ballot, though, as soon as possible. However you vote, vote early. Crowds are usually smaller, lines are shorter, and the post office isn't as busy. If you're one who likes to vote on election day, try to avoid times when crowds may be larger, such as lunchtime or before work or after work. And remember, wear a mask, maintain social distance, and sanitize your hands thoroughly after touching surfaces. Your voice matters, so vote on or before November 3rd and vote like your health and your health care depend upon it. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. And you know, there really is no better way to enrich your life than by making a difference in the life of someone else. Volunteering is a great way to do just that. No matter how old or young you are, giving just a bit of yourself can be all it takes to break the ice, to give somebody the push they might need. Did you just say
1: break the ice on on purpose there? I did. Very nice, (laughs) because right now we're going to go to the skating rink, thanks to a nationwide program called the Gliding Stars. And what they do is they make it possible for those with special needs to go skating. And it turns out the ice offers exercise, independence, and joy in the most unexpected ways. Like any parent, when her son, Benji, was born, Tanya Morris's world changed forever. But what should have been the happiest day of her life was anything but. Her son was near death.
4: He's got a chromosome anomaly, uh, 6 and 7, and there isn't a uh, survival rate of it. So when he was born, they gave him 24 hours to live.
1: Tanya and her husband and Benji chose to fight day after day, year after year.
4: This year we'll be celebrating his 17th year. As he's gotten older, they've told us different things. He wouldn't be able to move his arms and legs. He'd never, he would be a vegetable. I mean, we've gotten every gloom and doom you could think of, we've gotten. And, um, and we just, if he fought, we fought. And that's just how we lived.
1: But there are many realities they've had to accept.
4: He's always with a caregiver. He will always be with a caregiver. He's never going to have that opportunity to have his own apartment, go out with his friends to the movies, do this, that, or the other, like other 16-year-old kids. But one thing he does have is he's hanging out with other kids just like him on the ice.
1: Oh, yeah, she said ice. It was a suggestion from the director of a program called Gliding Stars.
4: She saw Benji and she's like, have you ever thought about him ice skating. And I looked at my husband and I'm like, what do these people think? Are they insane? You know?
1: Her answer was no.
4: I honestly didn't want him on the ice. I thought he was going to get hurt. I mean, I can't stand on skates. He can't stand. Why would I put him on skates?
1: But Tanya couldn't get the thought out of her mind.
4: I want to be able to give Benji every opportunity. And I don't ever want to have that regret of, I should have at least given him the chance.
1: Thanks to Gliding Stars, Benji got fitted with a pair of special skates and a special skating partner, a volunteer named Bridget Wirth, who's all of 12 years old. And when they
4: placed her with him, my first thought was, are you serious? I'm like, you do understand Benji's 16, right? And they're like, oh yeah, he'll be fine. She knows what she's doing. And I'm like, she's 12. (laughs) I barely know what I'm doing.
1: But something between Bridget and Benji clicked, and over the months, they formed an undeniable friendship.
4: Benji's really
3: sweet, and you can pick up on, like, what he does to tell, like, how, like, he's feeling because he can't talk. So, like, if he's frustrated, he'll, like, have a mad look on him. uh, You can just tell.
4: Ready to rock that ice? Yeah. Yeah?
1: Bridget, were you, at first, a little scared to help with kids with special needs?
3: A little bit because I didn't know what to expect, but now I'm not.
1: So what would you tell people like me and the rest of us who are always a little nervous?
3: Just try to always have a smile on your face and understand them.
4: I can't put into words how he makes me feel when Bridget takes him a full circle on that ice, and that smile that he has on his face, and he holds on to her arms, and he'll clap for her, and he's so excited. And he just loves it, he loves it. He loves going fast, he loves that. He does the walking movement, which he wouldn't do if he wasn't on the ice. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's not just Bridget, Crystal Nuttall volunteers as well. Okay.
4: I think being out on the ice, the gliding around and feeling the wind in your face and just that freedom is amazing, especially if you're stuck in a wheelchair every day and you don't feel all of it, the movement. I think volunteers don't realize how important their time is. I feel like without the volunteers here, we wouldn't be able to do this. We wouldn't have this. My son couldn't enjoy this. Would you like that? If there was no Crystal and there was no Bridget, there'd be no Benji on the ice. I think volunteers are the heart and soul of this program, as well as the stars. You want to go backwards? I think everybody has a right to feel happiness, and if I can help them find some sort of happiness, it makes me feel good. The special needs world is a small world, but it is a big world, too. You don't get a whole lot of support. You don't find other parents that get it. I mean, unless you're actively looking, and honestly, who has time for that when you have a child like Benji? You're basically alone. You're, you're alienated from the world. Good job. There you go.
1: But for an hour a week, Gliding Stars puts Benji and Tanya on a level playing field, where everything is possible and everyone is family. What can we learn? That no matter what your limitations, life is about taking chances, making friends, and having adventures.
4: Give them that chance to be a person. Give them that chance to feel independent and feel freedom. That, that happiness is indescribable.
1: Don't you find a lot of people think that you're being a bad mom if you don't take him home and wrap him up in bubble wrap and protect him from everything? I think everything?
4: wrapping him in bubble wrap makes me a bad mom. Ha uh-huh. Exposing him to the world makes me the very best mom I could be.
1: Well, Mark, it's a really touching story because, you know, Benji, he can't speak at all. He can't walk. He can't text or type. He's virtually cut off from everything. His mom has fought so hard to give him opportunities and experiences along the way. And isn't it interesting that thanks to the kindness of a 12-year-old, Benji actually now has something to look forward to, something that makes him feel like somebody. He doesn't get that very often in his life, and you can only imagine what that must mean to him.
2: Yeah, it it is heartbreaking and and inspiring at the same time. You're right, Bill. He's alone. He's isolated. Something that uh, can and does happen to frail and elderly people all the time, everybody needs to belong. Everybody wants a chance to be a person, to be in control, to be independent, to have a say in in his or her own life. So, you know, whether you're 12 or 16 or 80, it really doesn't make any difference. Being human means reaching out to those on the streets, in our neighborhoods and communities, offering a bit of your time, trying to find a way to share your heart, uh, to help somebody have something to look forward to in their life.
1: Well, folks, as you can tell, Mark has a way of saying things worth thinking about in the most inspiring and motivating of ways. And when we come back, he'll let us know what's on his mind. This is Growing Boulder.
0: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
1: Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Wellbeing. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at crosbywellnesscenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Let go. Welcome back to Growing Boulder, the program that reminds you that it is never too late to live a better, more purposeful, healthier life. Growing Boulder's launch pad to what's next presenter, Barbara Hannah Grufferman, the author of Love Your Age, shares some thoughts that might help.
5: Now I'm feeling I want to be mobile and independent for as long as possible. So everything I'm doing for myself now, and I encourage everyone else to as well, is to make sure that I can reach that goal. And to me that's successful aging. If I can be mobile and independent, if I can, you know, live my best life, if I can achieve what I want to achieve. And I have to mention, we also have people in our lives who we may have to take care of. I have an aging mother who fell and broke her hip. She needs me now more than ever. And I want to be there for her. And I have two daughters who are in their 20s who still need me. And, of course, I have my husband. (laughs) And so I'm finding that as I'm getting older, there are more people who need me in their lives, not less, not less. So I need to be physically and mentally ready for that.
1: That's Launchpad to What's Next presenter Barbara Hannah grufferman on feeling needed, something that's important to all of us, and one of the keys to active longevity. And that's what she thinks, and I can tell by that look that you've got in your eye, Mark Middleton, that you are standing by with something
2: on your mind. You know, Bill, there is too much on my mind every single day, but but you know, what I've been thinking about today is flattening the curve, and this is not the one that you folks are thinking about, uh, and it's not as simple to flatten this curve as wearing a mask and social distancing. We need to flatten the frail elderly curve. We mentioned the frail elderly early in the show. Uh, there is an onslaught of frail elderly that now require care from their families and friends and and in our health care system in general, uh, and if we don't, if we don't, Don't figure out a way to flatten this curve. uh, The frail elderly will, in fact, overrun our health care system and our ability to take care of them. We are now, at this very moment, at a very difficult uh, intersection, uh, uh, intersection of transformational challenges, if you will. You know, when we started doing this, Bill, we were talking about the fact that 10,000 people were turning uh, – 55 every single day, and then we said, well, now they're turning 60. Well, today, 10,000 people are turning 70 each and every day in this country, and with the average life expectancy being 79, for far too many, it's going to be a decade of disease and disability. And here's the deal. 70% of those over 65 will need long-term care but very few have the ability to pay for it. In fact, 55% of all households with the head of household 55 or older have no retirement savings and no pension at all elderly poverty is about to explode. And at the same time, there's this widening care gap. The divorce rate is climbing for older Americans. Families are fragmented. Millennials are now struggling because of the pandemic. Uh, Already one in five adults over the age of 65 is what we call a solo senior. So who's going to take care of these people? And here's where it all comes together. Um, There's been multiple studies recently about the stress, the depression, the anxiety suffered by caregivers. There's 50 million caregivers in this country, and since the pandemic began, they have been overwhelmed uh, by the responsibility of providing care. It's impacted their mental health in many ways. Depression is skyrocketing. Thoughts of suicide is skyrocketing. So, Now it comes back to the growing bolder message. You know, what can we do to flatten the curve of of frail elderly? Unfortunately, it's difficult to do for those that are there right now. We've got to change the lifestyles of people in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. Everybody listening needs to modify their lifestyle, and you do that. First and foremost, by changing your belief system about aging. We say this all the time what the mind believes the body embraces. Our psychology drives our physiology. So, folks, if you don't believe that more is possible, you need to start doing it because your vision, the one that you have inside right now about how you age, is probably how you will age.
1: And isn't it true, Mark, that the other part of that is that we live life as if nothing. We're totally unaware of what the next phase is going to be. We don't think about what life is going to be like for us or what we want it to be like when we're 70, 80, or older. We just wait and let it happen. And that's where the financial problems Mm -hmm. come in. And that's where not being in the best physical condition comes in. We Frail elderly is an epidemic. And like you say, we have to look at it that – do you envision your own future being like that or being like somebody who's still – able to enjoy life and take vacations and be
2: active in their community. It seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, it really does. And this is what exacerbates this whole thing. You know, we should go another 60 minutes on this show, Bill. But uh, it, it's it's the fact that our health care system is, is ageist as well. Doctors are ageist. There are 7,000 geriatricians in this country, and we need 25,000. Medical schools, most of them don't even require that you take a rotation in geriatric medicine. Many of them don't even offer that. So there's far too few people who understand what it's like to age so doctors prescribe pills instead of lifestyle modification older people are kept out of clinical trials because they have multiple comorbidities when in fact the clinical trials are to come up with medications that they need more than anybody else older people are denied surgery they're denied coverage for for certain types of medical interventions because the ageist healthcare profession thinks that they're too old to take advantage of it. So uh, it is really, really difficult. If we're gonna change the culture of aging, everybody's got a a part to play, especially our healthcare system.
1: So you, you say this a lot, Mark, and I think it's a great point, too. We all sit around and expect government to change or the medical profession to change, but the change begins with us, the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at our parents, the way we look at our communities and lives moving forward. And, Mark, that's an excellent, excellent what's on my mind for this week because it's something that should be on everybody's mind as well. So... One thing to ask before we leave is how do you start growing bolder? The truth is it depends upon you. If you are growing bolder, if you are not just going through the motions, and if you are living a life of intent, you've got a good head start. Don't wait to react to what happens. Start writing your own script. You'll be amazed at what can happen, and you can find more information. You can find inspiring interviews, videos, and a whole lot more at growingbolder.com. See what a difference it makes to have hope, inspiration, and possibility in your life.
0: The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day.
2: Crimson flames tide through my years high and mighty trap Countless
3: fires